Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. When we look at research, especially in the realm of development and parenting, we tend to focus on things like resilience or struggles families face and the like. This is particularly true when we look at the research on parenting in families of color. The focus starts with what's wrong and how we can fix it. It was under this guise that I approached Dr. Erica Bachneck, as she had done some research on resilience in black fathers that was, I, I thought, interesting. What we ended up talking about instead was quite different, with a much larger focus on the inherent racism that exists in the research questions and assumptions themselves, especially when we're looking at black fathers. I hope that you will find this as eye-opening and important a conversation as I did, because we need to recognize these problems in our own thoughts before we can start to fix them. I am so excited to have with me today Dr. Erica Bachneck. Dr. Erica Bachneck is an Associate Professor of Educational Psychology at Wayne State University and the Principal Investigator of the Families and Mental Wellness Lab. She studies social-emotional development in young children in the context of parenting and family relationships. Her research and clinical practice support strength-based practices in families like routines and rituals that are associated with young children's positive emotion regulation, which is the building block of mental health pathways across the lifespan. Dr. Bachnick currently serves as associate editor of the Infant Mental Health Journal and is on the editorial board of Infancy. Thank you so much for being here today, Erica. Thank you for having me. So we are going to dive in. I mean, you study families more generally, children's well-being, but we're honing in. This is part of my fatherhood series on some work you've done looking specifically at Black parenthood in the United States. And we're going to get to some of this work. There's been a few different areas that we already started talking about even before (laughs) we started recording here um, because there's so much to discuss. But before we dive into the specifics, what led you to study families more generally and these kind of positive relationships across the lifespan, social emotional development and so on? Well, I think there's a few answers to that question and thank you for it. It's fun to talk about the evolution of my work and and how I got here. I am licensed as a marriage and family therapist and I'm really at heart a person who just believes in the power of family. Salvador Mnuchin, the great family therapist, um, has this wonderful quote about how there's no better unit to raise a child than the family to help the child um, not feel like a stranger in a strange land. And I just believe so much in the power of families as as home spaces, as primary contexts for who we are and who we become. Um, and especially as I started to sort of think about and learn about whole family processes through my clinical work and my research, what I really had come to understand is that um, families have great power to buffer, to amplify, to um, to empower children in a way that no other part of our lives really can. And Facing stress and oppression in the world is really inevitable, and families are the place that you get your identity and strength. And then, as I was working with families, I really started to zero in on what are some, what are the most just and accessible parts of that. Um, and I love thinking about things, for example, like family rituals, because I, I can work with families who are really struggling with mental health issues, with um, you know, the correlates of structural racism and the way that trickles down to individuals. But there's great power, as as sort of mundane as it sounds, there's great power in Tuesday spaghetti night for the whole family, something the child looks forward to as a touch point, an organizing feature of family life. And I could really see how those kinds of aspects have enormous potential for impacting children's mental health over time. And so that's how I kind of got into the work. And then um, as a sort of a brief anecdote, when I was in graduate school, um, I said I was studying families, but over and over I was reviewing the literature on mothers and writing about mothers and launching studies about mothers because that is how the parenting literature is organized. It's largely mother-centric, even when we use terms like parenting and family. And a really wonderful mentor said, you know, you keep saying family, but you're not including fathers. And what's that about? And it was a light bulb moment for me in this really 
sort of silly, naive way. But from then on, I became very interested in understanding fathering, father's roles and families, how that's different and also the same from the mothering role. Um, and so I began there. I love that. And I love that quote about the family being kind of that center for children as we go. And that family doesn't have to be as something we kind of talked about, the nuclear family or anything. It's it's family has many different forms for kids, which I know we'll get to. So that's something coming up in a bit. Now, I wanted to ask too, you recently changed the name of your lab. And I'm going to, you know, point out the elephant in the room that we are going to be talking about black fatherhood um, from the work you've done. And we are two white women. And I think that's going to seem a little, what, for some people here. But you had a great response to some of the work you'd previously done and how you'd phrase things, the name of your lab. So you've had a shift recently. And I want to give you the space to kind of talk about that before we get into this, because I think it's really important to, you know, for people to understand where you're coming from with your work and the work you've done already and listening to others and how you frame your work going forward. So I'm going to let you take that one quickly here. Thank you so much. And, and, you know, being on a podcast in this format, some of my um, goal is to be able to create uh, an accessible way to communicate these things that are still actually works in progress for me. So I'll say a few words and then I hope you'll prompt me to around things that might be particularly interesting to keep talking about. Um, what I can tell you is that um, early in my career, I was a person who studied parenting and child development in the context of poverty. That's how I framed my work, that I want to understand how poverty and trauma impacted the development of children and their families. And I wanted to understand um, how positive processes could buffer those associations. And earlier I worked in spaces that were primarily white, actually, white um, lower income families. And then I took a job at Wayne State University in Detroit and I started my first study there. And we intentionally sampled families for that study, the Teddy study, Toddlers, Emotional Development and Young Families. We intentionally sampled families there from WIC clinics. We had a, a great partner who um, helped connect us to families um, who were utilizing WIC services. And very quickly, it was clear that I was now a white researcher working with black families in Detroit. Detroit is a primarily black city with a very rich cultural history and thriving families. And there's a lot for me to learn there. And I wanted to learn. And I've been really lucky also to have wonderful diverse colleagues and wonderful diverse graduate students and undergraduate students to work with at Wayne State. And we've had very candid conversations over the years about how research interacts with Black families and how we apply white-centric models to the study of Black families, thereby deficit-framing non-white families. And the more I understood this, the more I wanted to be different and do different work, because what's ultimately the goal of research is to gather information that can be useful in policy and practice. And it's not useful if there's an invisible bias. Now we used to be called the Family Resilience Lab. And this word resilience for me meant factors that help people bounce back from adversity and or buffer the risk of adversity. And what I've been told over and over is that that word is often weaponized against black children and their families. And it infers that in some way, being black is the risk that people need to bounce back from, which is ludicrous. But that is a way that the research really doubles down on racist and harmful narratives. And so I have, we changed the name of the lab and, but more meaningfully, we're trying to change the, um, the approach and the intent of the work. So another piece that was shared with me by a wonderful colleague, Dr. Lauren Mims, who is at Ball State, she shared this wonderful piece, um, and I'm just not remembering the author's names offhand. I'm, I'm going to pull the reference for you, but um, it's, it's called um, A Clarion Call on the Axiom of Brilliance. And it challenges researchers to say, what if instead of starting with a deficit narrative, 
about the group you're working with, and particularly Black children, that we start with this assumption about deficits that, you know, educational attainment is lower, and we make soft or not soft assumptions about how parenting is worse. What if we started with an axiom of brilliance? Black children are brilliant, full stop. Black families are brilliant and have raised and sustained flourishing children for generations, full stop. And if we start with that axiom, and yet we're showing that our measures have these hierarchical outcomes, then what does that tell us? The structures are flawed, the methodologies are flawed. And so I'm really turning my attention there too, that, so yes, I am a white woman who studies black families, but what I'm also really trying to understand is how whiteness is embedded in methodology and work and I'm not here to be an expert on how Black parents should parent their families. What I'm trying to do is be a person who helps widen the lens and is transparent about how the research is conducted so that we all can collectively get to a place that research truly fulfills its purpose of being an information gatherer and informing best practices with families. We could just stop right here. I feel like we're we're good. <laughs> we can just leave it because uh, that was fantastic. And I think it's so important. And I, I would add one other thing to this is that I, you know, we talk about allyship and, you know, you're in a position of power and using it in a brilliant way because you are able to shed light on things that others might not be able to. And so I think it's wonderful that you have taken this journey. You are approaching it this way. And I absolutely loved your bit on Twitter and what you just reiterated here about the weaponization of resilience. And I have always, I have a struggle with the term in general, I have to admit it doesn't, it's, it does feel like, I'm going to be less eloquent than you here, but I, I feel like with resilience, we ignore the systemic issues, we ignore elements in favor of, no, you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of attitude that comes with it. We kind of, it shows in our culture, the value of the individual, as opposed to the value of a collective, a society that, you know, if you look at systemic racism, systemic poverty, all these things that go into play, you know, why should one person have to be resilient to that? Why can't we look at it as no, sorry, this is all of our collective problem. And we are here to make changes that end that. I don't want to celebrate the few people who, great, you survived in spite of a society stacked against you. Congratulations. But that's not the society I want to be living in. And mm -hmm. so when we focused on resilience in so many ways, and I think what you highlighted, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, this actually is a bit of a follow-up. It feels like so much of the individual work on resilience to date has been on individual level factors. Mm -hmm. Not, you know, we're going to put the burden on parents, on children. We're not going to say, okay, policy, schools, et cetera, this is what you're going to do mm -hmm. to make it better. We turn around and say, no, 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 we've put you in a bad situation, but it's up to you to get out of it. Is that fair assessment of a lot of the, at least what I've read? And the problem is I haven't read all of the research, obviously, on resilience. So I could be overreaching on that regard. No, I mean, it, it is such an interesting question. Um, I have two answers to it. One is that in good faith, I know that people who have been studying resilience for a long time are working hard to expand their work, right? So like Anne Mastin, for example, is a giant in the field. She coined the, coined the term ordinary magic. And when she brought that into the field, it was a step forward from how resilience had previously been talked about, which was really relegated to like IQ and like physical attractiveness. Ooh, cringe, right? Like I think we can all agree in 2021 that's not true resilience. Um, and it has no, and it has no uh, uh, connection to structures and systems. And so her work moved it forward, but still did retain this idea, as you said, that it, that it makes invisible systemic inequities and really puts the burden on individuals. Now, she is an example. She has a very recent paper out about resilient structures and systems. 
And so I want to be optimistic in that I think people understand at least this is a problem and are trying to think about it. But intervention and practice and even policy have not moved forward. Still, what we do is say, we'll say out loud that we know that there's disproportionate minority confinement, for example, disproportionate representation of Black families um, in poverty and, um, and, and in kind of risk groups. And that, but then the answer isn't, let's really think through why we live in a society that has this kind of a, a racialized caste system. The response is, let's bring in um, home learning interventions where we're going to teach people how to talk to their children. It actually is a leap. If you really sit down and think about it, it's a leap that we've said poverty adversely impacts people. Poverty is confirmed by inequitable structures. And the way that we're going to respond is teach people how to parent. Why do I know better how someone else should parent their child? It it, it's it's a gap, and what it really represents is this kind of white white supremacist attitude around solution building that it needs to be universal, it needs to be perfectionist, and it needs to be quick and hierarchical. That there's a coach and a a student, and um, so I to me actually that's a big part of where the real gaps are um, is how are we designing interventions from the axiom of brilliance, from the axiom of thriving? How do we enter families' lives in useful, meaningful ways? How do we partner and say, we're here to be a support? Um, and what would that look like? And uh, yeah, thank you for clarifying because it is true. And it makes me go back to that age-old problem of what gets funded. So as soon as you say that, you know, of course, it's the policies, the everything that's still stuck in this idea of individuality, well, they're the ones funding things. So what are they going to fund is the research that's based on that, that belief set that they have. So I want to thank you for that. And I thank you for your approach like this, that it is widening the lens and really focusing on these systemic issues and focusing on the axiom of brilliance, which I hope you will talk a bit more about when we get into the child outcomes. But I do want to start because your your research, as we start to dive in here, is kind of a bit of both. So I've had people on who do solely physiological mm. measures of research. I've had people that come on and do, um, you know, behavioral research. And you seem to kind of blend both in looking at both. I, and, and I'm going to focus on the fathering work just because this is about fathering in general. Um, so before we go into it, can you give a bit of a, a background and as brief as needs be, because people have probably heard it from others too, but I think it's important to understand what are the measures you're looking at mm -hmm. and how do they relate to parenting? Because I think sometimes we hear things like, you know, respiratory sinus arrhythmia, and people are like, I don't know what that has to do with how I parent. That feels <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> what, does, what does that have to do with me as a parent or the experience of my children? But obviously, as you can attest to, it does. So what are those factors that you look at? And how are they linked to parenting briefly? Sure. So I'm interested in emotional development and emotional socialization in families. And my, my own starting axioms are that emotions are functionalist, which means that we develop those emotions as signals to into the world. Sometimes we have a habit of talking about emotions as though they're unfortunate byproducts of living that we really need to suppress, but that's really not what they are. They're actually our superpower. They're, they're a quick and dirty way for us as humans. And we don't have many defensive strategies. We don't have sharp teeth. We don't run very fast. Emotions are actually our superpower because we can detect in an instant if an environment is safe, if a relationship is safe, and if an interaction is going to produce joy or fear. That's what that's for. And that's why they develop so early in infancy. And so I'm really interested in how children learn to self-regulate, which means understand what they're feeling, interpret the information correctly, and then make a behavioral choice that's appropriate for context. Um, and then I'm interested in how families socialize that and support that. The reason I look at it from a biobehavioral perspective, and the reason I explained it this way as this kind of very human indicator is that you have to imagine that every system in your body is actually wrapped around 
that need to be able to utilize emotional information effectively. So it isn't just this kind of socialized behavioral construct. It really um, is a feature down to your very core, down to your neurological functioning, that we are people who are wired for fight or flight responses to negative stimulation, which means that the brain instantly starts producing all kinds of hormonal and physiological output to move your body to get you to respond in addition to your cognitive functioning, being able to identify the words that we've assigned to emotions and make sense of emotions. All those things are working in concert. Um, and we learn something from the output of all different systems of the body when a person is under stress about how that person is reacting and interpreting information. And there's a lot of literature that suggests that either the lack of coordination of all those systems or the over-functioning or under-functioning of all of those systems are what contribute over time to mental health problems. So that's why we look at emotion regulation in a variety of ways. Which is great. So with that, when you talk about the research, this is why it matters as we get to it. As we talk about this, one of the things that actually made me shift the question here a bit, you had talked initially, you focused on poverty and trauma earlier in your research, and even in the papers on on black fathering, we see this as a leading discussion. So, and we know about some of the effects we've talked, you will probably highlight some of the known effects, but how do we look at those from the axiom of brilliance? How do we take those ideas and now shift the narrative so that we can now see it from the new perspective that you've talked about? Well, specifically this paper, this is a great paper to discuss in some ways because it represents me on the highway, right? This was a paper I wrote as I, and I'm still, I mean, not that I've reached the destination, but this was really a moment in progress when I was re-examining data that we collected a few years ago and trying to understand it now from this new perspective. And what we wanted to put out there into the world through this paper is the idea that stress and trauma exposure and even mental health challenges don't behave in linear ways when it comes to parenting. This was one kind of piece that we're trying to unpack and unlock that we assume when parents experience mental health challenges that they're inherently worse parents. And there's a wealth of literature specific actually to depression and even more specific to maternal depression that is what kind of raises the, the, the boat on this and just says unilaterally, if someone's depressed, they're gonna experience problems in their parenting. And this sort of creates, and I think an over, there's a lot that shakes out around this when we, when we don't stop to look at the nuance of how mental health interacts with parenting and family processes. And even before I think I started to really interrogate how race and racism were impacting the work that I do um, as, a, as a mother, as a clinician, and as somebody who's battled depression most of my life, but at least most of my adult life, I really wanted to push back on this idea that, and so I'm a bad mother. What does it mean to be a person who's facing adversity, who's experiencing bad days and good days, and is really invested and devoted to parenting? Can those things coexist and not have linear relationships necessarily? So the folks who were in the Teddy sample, and, and, and right now we're talking about the dads, had um, really high rates of PTSD. This was actually a little bit of, um, for me, a little bit of a shock when we ran into these data to see that, these, uh, that the rates are higher than combat veterans. And um, it's, it's, it was a surprising number. Um, but then what we're seeing across the data, this was one example, this was one paper, but we're seeing actually this in the mothering data too, that having PTSD doesn't necessarily predict impaired parenting. So in this paper, what we show is that people are compensating um, high RSA, which means a high degree of physiological regulation when under stress buffers the association between PTSD and parenting. Dads were still very responsive to their children, relying on their, only, their own internal systems to cope. 
Um, and we're seeing in other data too that when parents experience PTSD uh, symptoms, excuse me, even at high levels, there's many other factors like how positive their family climate is, the presence of family rituals, the ways they organize their families, that they are really intentionally raising and creating thriving families. I want to talk about this nonlinearity with PTSD and depression in the parenting, because I do agree with you as someone who's also struggled with depression throughout um, life. It is nice to know that it's not a linear relationship, but what... When I think about, you know, especially fathering, because this was a high rate, if I remember correctly from the paper, there was both a high rate of PTSD, very high rate, and yeah. a very, very high rate of depression. I think it was in the 60%, was it? Yeah, it Which, was high. I don't have the numbers offhand. And the reason I don't is because we've also wrestled with reporting out who was above threshold versus who had moderate enough symptoms that it may have impaired functioning. So we've actually reported different percentages in different papers as a result. Everyone in the sample reported some degree of trauma exposure. Yeah. And so when I look at that, it brings me back to the systemic issue. Because how do you get to the stage where you take a look at that data and don't say, wow, what's wrong with our society mm. that that many people have had exposure to trauma in a variety of forms. And how then do we look at, I guess one of my questions for you here is how do we see, or do you see anything in the parenting that might be beneficial? So I'm thinking about the interaction between parenting and PTSD, and it's bringing me back to work of others that I've spoken to who have looked like Dr. Paula J, who's looked at um, discipline in different mm -hmm. groups. Mm -hmm. There's sometimes a purpose to different parenting behaviors in response to the environment you're in. And I'm thinking about fathering in the context of if you're a father who, through your own experience, knows the systemic issues of the society that you are in that are going to affect your child, a white-centric view of your parenting is going to be very different than the way in which you parent to prepare your child for that world, to compensate for some of those things. Does that make sense? Am I getting, like, do we see, are there differences in how they parent that would actually be functionally very helpful for the child knowing they're entering a white supremacist, racist culture? So I have three answers to that question, which are maybe interrelated and maybe not. Let me see if I can if I can say all of them, if I remember all of them. One is that I've had many black colleagues say that we need to stop framing everything black parents do as a function of living in a racist society, that they are also full humans and, and parents and their children deserve the, to be viewed as humans outside of the adversity they face. And so that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I wanted to say is that there's a great literature on racial socialization strategies, which might speak better to the question you're asking than I can speak to. Dr. Rihanna Anderson's work, for example, is one to look to where she's really investigating how parents talk with their children about cultural identity, racial identity, as well as uh, preparation for bias. And a doc student I'm working with, a very talented doc student named Kim Stokes, is also doing some of that work in Detroit in early childhood. What does racial socialization look like in early childhood? But the third thing that I want to say that I'm learning a lot about right now about culturally specific parenting practices is how Black joy enters the frameworks, how we think about joy in the context of parenting broadly, and how we really seek to understand from the Black community the role that Black joy plays in thriving. And so that's a, a big turn that my work has taken that we're increasingly not asking people about their trauma, or at least trying to move in that direction. And instead, holding in our in the background in our minds that trauma exists, that in a racist society, that is uh, true, but that there's so much more to learn about Black joy about Black families and homes as primary learning spaces and primary sources of socialization and strength. And so that's where my work is going to really be able to learn from and shine a light on those kinds of processes. 
I actually want to, I should clarify here. I did not mean that the parenting would actually be negative in some way. I think actually the idea of black joy speaks quite well to it because to me, that seems like, you know, you do have this trauma in the background. There is going to be these issues. So how do you counter that in your parenting? You can focus on joy and how you bring it out, right? Is that, or am I just thinking of this all wrong? Because I'm totally open to being completely wrong here on it. But it seems like what a great counter to start with this brilliance and be like, here are families that bring joy and focus on joy in a variety of ways. I think, I think it's fair to say, I mean, here's my understanding of it again, as a white person kind of wading into this work and trying to understand my understanding of it is that black joy exists as not just kind of a strength-based process, but even a political act facing, you know, recognizing humanity. But I, but I think more, but I think, but I think the point still stands that I am seeking to not constantly call out a name trauma as a context in which black families live. Um, I also, frankly, I'm sort of at a place in my career too, where I think we really know a lot about how trauma impacts development. And there's some amount of kind of personal gratification around continuing to force people into research studies to tell us about their trauma, to have their heart rate measured, to have their cortisol measured, to take hair samples and blood samples and put them in scanners. And like, for what? Like we do, we know that trauma relates to mental health problems. We know that trauma impacts development in adverse ways. We know that. And so far it doesn't seem to be translating into a more just and nurturing society. So I think just for me, I'm starting to say, I think I've learned what I can learn about this from people. I think they've given me the information I need to move forward. Brilliant. I think it goes back to that resilience again, right? Is the idea of we keep honing in on it to find the individualistic answer mm -hmm. to say, if just everyone ate broccoli for lunch every day, then everything would be fine. And <laughs> we don't have to make the big hard changes there. Gosh. So right? Is that, it feels like that's what we're doing here, right? If policy yeah. hasn't caught up, it's all about trying to get down to that individual level. So when you looked at fathering, sorry, I want to go back to the paper here. Please, so you, yes. you, about, you had this. I really like, you mentioned that the high RSA buffered that relationship, but yeah. was the relationship still not linear? Are we still looking at, you know, I think one of the things people need to hear sometimes is that we still get caught in that thinking, kind of like you said, like I had depression and so I'm a bad mom. Like this kind of, it goes, our narratives are very black and white and very clear cut. And yet I would say you probably saw even people with low RSA who were still good parents, like who had experienced this, had low RSA, were good parents. Mm -hmm. So what was the kind of parenting behaviors that you were looking for in relationship to RSA? Uh, because also, I think it's fair to be clear that we're looking at specific behaviors in response to RSA, right? So because right. you had people like it wasn't just that they were bad parents, because you had a stress condition and a neutral kind of condition. And those varied based on the responses you saw in parenting as well. Yes, um, exactly. So, yeah. So can you talk a bit about what you found in those conditions and how we kind of contextualize that into fathering more generally, that it's not just this black and white, good, bad, this is high, therefore this is bad kind of idea. How What's our better framework for thinking of the interactions amongst all these things. Yeah, so I know I told you at the start of this call, I, my work has really moved on since then and I'm trying to remember exactly what we found. But what I, what I seem to remember is that for fathers who had high RSA, which refers to higher physiological regulatory capacity, which what that really means, why that's important is that their system develop a person system develops in response to patterned experiences. So if somebody has high RSA, that is one way, it's one marker. It's one way that I know that over time they've learned how to internally self-regulate 
in response to stress. It's essentially a developmental marker. Um, and for fathers who had higher RSA, higher presence of physiological regulation, they were there, there was a non-significant relationship between their PTSD symptoms and how responsive they were to their child in a stressful paradigm in the lab. But the other finding that was of interest is that for fathers who had high um, RSA, there was a non-significant relationship between their parenting behaviors after stress and their parenting behaviors in this teaching task, which we thought meant that they were differentiating parenting behaviors across tasks, whereas there may have been a different kind of consistency for fathers who had lower physiological regulation. Um, and so that's why we looked at parenting across two different paradigms. When you say there wasn't a relationship, does it mean like stress may cause, I mean, if I get stressed, I'm not as good a parent as I am if I'm not stressed. So are we thinking more that this kind of regulatory struggle that we can all have is really more affecting the times when we're under stress, but it doesn't necessarily negatively impact our parenting more generally? I think what's really important to think about is that experiencing stress can impact your parenting, but also it isn't as simple as sort of saying when people are under stress, they retreat. Um, what might be happening instead is that people are still actively, intentionally nurturing their children, but perhaps experiencing wear and tear internally on their own system in order to be able to do that. And or experiencing mental health problems may only show up in certain aspects of your parenting behaviors and not others. Um, I think that that's a, that's a different way that we think about it. And the other thing that we're exploring now is the idea that um, although although this isn't this isn't sort of intervention friendly because we're in no way recommending that people develop mental health symptoms, that there is this kind of interesting relationship where experiencing mental health symptoms in some ways may make you more vigilant when you're with your child in a positive way, but again at, at cost to you. But that it isn't sort of as simple as to say, you need to get yourself together in order to be a better parent. We're just trying to understand the complexities of what it means for folks in the moment, in the room with the child, and how we can help honor what people are really striving to do and doing well and nurturing their children and developing intimacies. I mean, this is kind of the other thing is that there's so much limitation to how we do research where it's all sort of behaviorally based. It's very performative. And that is a very white centered value about what parenting looks like. But what we know scientifically really matters for good outcomes is this less um, measurable, but more important idea around intimate relationships that when parents and children have ongoing bonds that are informed by the good and the bad, that they learn together and they love together and that children experience predictability and consistency and kind of that feeling of being seen, um, that this translates into good outcomes over time. But we tend to get really hung up on these ideas that there's like a behaviorally based strategy to be a good parent and it's probably just not so. I ran into this graphic the other day that was about kind of tweaking your speech to encourage open-ended conversation with your child. And on the left side of the column, it was like, you know, don't just say, get your jacket. It was like, and then on the right side of the column, it said, which jacket would you like to wear? And that's all well and good. I don't have a criticism necessarily of that, but the framing of it was to suggest that one is good parenting. And I don't know that we know that. Thank you for calling those out because I see a lot of those kind of charts that are, and again, like you said, it's not that they're inherently bad. I think they can be helpful tools. If you're a person that finds yourself snapping at your kid all the time because you're so, maybe that shift in language is going to be enough just to facilitate that relationship. But then it is, as you said, it's about the relationship. And this actually leads to, you know, my next question is because you've also looked at some of the childhood responses to this. And mm -hmm. I think when we talk about relationships, one of the things that both is still lacking 
I think, in a lot of the research. And it's certainly in mothering. And I think as, you know, anything that's lacking in mothering is certainly lacking in fathering research because (laughs) it goes that way. But you start to look at it here is, you know, our parenting doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in response to our child. Mm -hmm. And our children Mm -hmm. affect how we respond. They affect how we go. And as you just put so beautifully, it's about building this relationship over time. And so crucial to that is us being able to respond to what our children need, which is going to be different child to child. And then certainly our children to other children. And so when you look at these kind of... um, I know it was like RSA, which is a good match. You did look at it across fathers and children. Yes. Um, And what was there a relationship? Is there kind of an implicit learning going on amongst others? Or how does the relationship between each of their regulation Mm -hmm. impact the parenting behaviors? So I think there's a couple of things to say here. And again, this is one of those moments where uh, I'll count on you to help me with how I communicate these ideas. There's a couple of things here. One is that children's systems of regulation are shaped by the adults in their lives. And again, this is a survivalist instinct that children are wonderfully intuitive and depend really heavily on the social cues of the people around them, especially the people they trust most and love the most in their primary relationships. So we expect to see some degree of harmony between children's regulatory capacities and their parents' regulatory capacities. That's one thing is there's overlap. The second thing, though, is that people know their kids. And if you're if you have a child who is more labile and maybe it's temperament, maybe it's socialization, we can't isolate these things. If ultimately you have a child who's more labile you're likely to parent in a way that is relevant to that child's behavioral pattern and output. You're likely to know this child, some children can handle a little more stress than others in terms of what it will mean for them being able to bounce back and self-regulate in the moment. Um, Some children have, you know, one of my kids, something I really, I just really love so much about him is that when he's going through an emotional experience He's really in the moment and his presentation may even look labile to other people, but I know he's going to say it all out loud and go through it and then it's going to wrap. And so I know that and I tailor my parenting to that. I, I have learned instead of sort of jumping on those behaviors and managing them that I create space for them because the best way for him to self-regulate is to go through it and say it and experience it, and then he's gonna wrap it. And my job is to be sort of the cushion in the background. Another one of my kids keeps it all inside and I do need to a little more actively help her name it and say it, but then also have some boundaries on it, some limits on it because of the way that I think it kind of eats her up. And we have to count on parents instead of having these sort of universal guidelines for this is the way you do it, we have to really help parents know their kids, wonder about them, and we have to believe them. We have to believe that they know their kids the best, that we can't just walk into a living room as clinicians and observe and assume and and create plants. So with this, I I like you mentioned the overlap because kids learn, but I was thinking specifically too of the cases with non-overlap. So you mentioned just Mm -hmm. earlier you know, not that we would recommend everyone get mental health issues, but it can make, you know, parents more vigilant, more aware, more. And it seems like there's this, it fits with an idea of long-term parenting that yes, there's a cost to you to be vigilant to do that, but you're setting your child up for greater success because perhaps that vigilance is actually building their regulatory capacity. So it's like, yes, I'm taking a hit, but, you know, each generation can get successively better because of I'll take the hit here to build up your sense of capacity and build our relationship to be better so that you don't, you know, have the, potentially the same struggles as we all go back with our parents, you know, the things that we didn't, want, you know, that we want to change um, to build up that relationship, to build that that sense of competency through these moments. And so do you sometimes see some of that where parents might actively be struggling themselves, but helping shape that emotion regulation piece for their younger children? 
So there's competing theories on this um, in terms of how physiological regulation develops optimally. One is that experiences with stress, repeated experiences with stress in a linear fashion kind of create wear and tear on the system. The other kind of competing theory on this is that there's kind of a U shape that moderate experiences with stress give children the greatest opportunity to practice self-regulatory skills, to teach the system, the internal system, that a little bit of cortisol is okay, we can self-regulate, we can down-regulate, we will have kind of a normative pattern over time, and that giving your children moderate experiences to, to autonomously cope and self-regulate um, can be healthy. I admit I actually much prefer the second theory on it, but I think what's crucial and what you mentioned is this idea of moderate stress. Mm -hmm. And I think it goes to both obviously, you know, exposing our kids to highly traumatic events is definitely, I, I don't know a parenting world where that's, that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. um, just like we don't actively get into car accidents to kind of be like, look, we might survive. But I also think it speaks, you know, again, to this child issue of some kids, I know my kids, one can handle stress, you know, what is moderate for one mm. is a lot for another, right? Mm. So mm. there's, you know, that difference in terms of what might seem like what some people would say coddling for one child is really catering to their stress and keeping those exposures to build it up over time, more moderate versus the other who you're like, ah, you're okay. Um, I know you'll be fine with everything. Uh, and I'm here, but you can handle it. And I know that. So I find it really interesting. So and, and overall, though, with fathers, there was this relationship, right? Between because we've always looked at this with mothers, there's tons of research on kind of this physiological synchrony between mothers and children, right? And you are seeing it with fathers as well. Yes. Yes. So and is it kind of a similar pattern to mothers or are we seeing anything different between, you know, is it slightly different for fathers? I can reference someone else's research here actually that I think is something that I thought a lot about over the years. Dr. Lori Rogman coined the term primary playmate. One of her ideas is that while mothers in in many cultures and many communities, not everywhere, but, uh, but to, with some degree of homogeneity in the earliest years, Mothers do a lot of the nurturing and caregiving and behave in a way that helps to limit children's experiences with stress. And Dr. Rodman has this hypothesis that more often dads play a role where they give children higher experiences around stress exposure. And that might be as simple as like dad's more likely to throw the baby up in the air and catch than a mother is. And again, not in all families. Um, but it's this kind of really provocative and interesting idea that there may be something unique to dads around expanding children's opportunities for self-regulation. That's fascinating because that would kind of counter. It almost seems like fathers may have a greater role in that development of stress regulate or rather a complementary role that you yes. need both to go there. And it's, you know, obviously not limited to fathers, as you said, it's just, but these two people, I don't know that one person could serve as both, right? Because if you're throwing them up, I don't know, maybe you could, it's kind of fascinating, but it is really interesting to hear that kind of role there in terms of this, because we've never thought about a second parent as having such a crucial role to the basic physiology of emotion regulation. So I yeah, love that. You know, one of the ways that I like to think about it, we started this podcast talking about the great Salvador Mnuchin, who um, uh, formed the, the, the model of structural family therapy. And his idea is that everybody in a family plays a different role and that there are boundaries around those roles that define who does what, and that children kind of depend on there being these complementary different roles. And actually, when I started the Teddy study, what I was really interested in studying is what were these kind of family processes that regardless of the gender of the person in the role, were there these complementary functions happening? Interestingly, that work got shortcutted because what I expected is that in that study, I thought that I was going to have 
meaningful numbers of dads, grandmas, aunties. I thought there was going to be a real heterogeneity in who our secondary caregiver was who came into the lab with the biological mom. But 75% of the families, it was a biological father. It ended up being a study on fathering. Um, but this is still kind of a question for me is how do we think about those complementary uh, role attributes? And is it gendered or is it just secondarily gendered. That's And that was one of the questions I was going to have. So I'm curious to hear when you get to that answer there, is it something about that? Now, I know we're at time here. Do you have time for one more question? I do. I know, yes, you do? Okay. Because yes. I really want to get to one other paper because we've talked about the physiology. I think it's fascinating that when we think about fathering in this context, we're seeing these relationships as it goes and even across kind of the mental health and whatnot. Um, but you have another paper looking more at the question of presence and absence or what family constructs look like. And it's not that this is necessarily about the research findings, but I think it's such a crucial issue to talk about because mm -hmm. we have very much an idea of involvement, paternal mm -hmm. involvement stemming from, okay, you're married. And the moment you're not married, there it goes. Um, dads aren't involved. And I really wanted to get, you know, your take, because you talked about all these different kinds of arrangements, that there's a problem with this view. And it's a very big problem in terms of research, because it's how we measure it, as we've kind of gone back to this issue of how studying fathering and Black fathering or fathering in other cultures is an issue if we're taking this view. Um, so what, if you don't mind, can you elaborate a bit on what the problem is with this view, but also what do we see in other, what does this involvement look like in, you know, African-American families in the U.S., I guess, if we're going to get really specific about it, even though I think it's probably applicable in some other countries like Canada and whatnot, but what do you see and how does this all relate to kind of the research overall and some of the flaws in the research because of how we've looked at it. Yeah, and this is just really a great example, I think, of how white-centric values deficit frame folks of the global majority. The way that we think the misnomer and the misnarrative is that Black fathers are under-involved with their children, that, um, you know, there's the myth of the fatherless family. And we used to, in the fathering literature, really define presence and absence as a binary. Does the father live in the home with the child? And if not, we called him an absent father. White families, I know the question was asked about specifically how Black families define family, but I, but I really think actually in some ways what's more relevant is make, to make transparent that white U.S. families define family based on the adults in the home and the relationship to each other. That's how the family is defined, who's in the family. And many other communities, including Black families, are child-centered in their definition of who's in the family, what's the relationship to the child. And what that translates to is that, again, broad generalizations, but white fathers are likely to define their relationship based on their relationship to the mother and their relationship to residential living patterns. And we do see under-involvement when white fathers don't live in the home with their children. However, black fathers are more likely to be very engaged with their children and, and other communities too. But um, I'm, I'm doing, I'm conducting right now black-centered research. So I'll just try to speak to that, that black fathers are very involved with their children, are very engaged with their children, especially in the early years. You know, compared to white fathers, we see black fathers are changing diapers and feeding bottles and engaging in nurturant parenting practices. Um, and all we did in this study was say to the biological mother, we'd like to invite in another parent who you consider the co-parent of this child. And there may be multiple, but who, adults in your family, but we, but we don't have a million dollars for this study, so we can only invite in one other adult. And we want the person who most co-parents with you. And if the biological father sees the child consistently, engages in parenting from your perspective, we really want to, to meet him. And we didn't have pushback on that. That's who it was in 75% of the families. It was the biological father, although I believe 18% of those couples were married to each other. So if we had not asked the family to define who the parents were, 
and we had just said whoever you're married to, we would have gotten a completely different picture of the families that we were working with. That is really interesting because it's, I love that child centric view that it's all about the relationship to the child, because it's true. When you think about parenting, I'm not parenting my partner. I mean, maybe once in a while, but I'm not parenting my partner. I am parenting my child. And so that relationship has to be what stands out there. And so of course, you know, this is an issue for research is a, a huge problem. If we're looking at it from a white centric perspective of what white families have generally viewed things as. So if we take all this together, you know, and I want to bring it all back to the axiom of brilliance, because you started with that. And I'm just in love with that idea. You know, it seems to me what you've described in black fathering is brilliant. You're seeing, you know, even I don't even want to take it as like, we need proof of it. But like, as you mentioned, they're highly involved with their young children. They're, you know, able to regulate themselves. They do what teaching tasks, stress tasks, etc. So from that axiom, how do you def like when you look at parenting? And from this, this idea, when you look at fathering, from this view of the axiom of brilliance, what does brilliant fathering look like? Hmm. Well, I think it looks like whatever families tell me it looks like. I mean, that's sort of where we are now is that we enter families instead of trying to prove the thesis of brilliance, we assume brilliance. We assume this family is brilliant and flourishing. And then we ask what what has what has gotten you there? What what helps you to flourish? How do we understand that? Um, I think as another example, some colleagues and I recently wrote a new measure about parenting joy. Um, in the parenting field, the the standard measures everyone uses to assess parenting is about parenting stress and parenting competence. And oh, thank you. I am I'm sorry <laughs> to interrupt, but it is so nice to hear that you're looking at something other than the struggles because it does feel. I read this over, and I'm like. I, but I, it makes it sound all bad. Like this is. Oh. Yeah, exactly. It defines parenting in actually a very narrow way. And it defines it as though it's a chore and a negative one. And for many of us, I mean, I can speak for myself. Parenting changed my life for the better. It was the, it was truly the miracle of my life to be able to become a mother. And so we had this new measure about the joy people find in their parenting. And we find in our study with Detroit families that parenting joy lines up better on our observed measures of parenting behaviors than does the parenting stress index or the parenting sense of confidence scale. So it's really just a matter of asking questions that invite people to share their strengths. And so when we think about going back to the very beginning here, this idea of what's been wrong with how we've studied parent, the white centric element of, of how we look at parenting, what biggest changes would you make to how we how we start researching fathering, parenting, etc.? I think people have to just be willing to be transparent and name what it is they're measuring. And, and, I, and I realize that's not a very like sexy answer, exciting answer. I'm not going to like take down all the systems here, but this is a thing researchers need to do that I'm trying to do is just to say out loud, I, the, the standard I'm applying is not unbiased. It's not universal. There isn't a right way to parent. There isn't optimal emotion regulation. I mean, we haven't even gotten there, but what we refer to as emotion regulation, typically we just mean the suppression of negative emotions. And that is not likely the whole of emotional competence, but that is how we measure it. So I think we just have to be willing to be more transparent and say, everybody in this research sample was white. And then I called something good parenting, but what I really mean is X, Y, and Z. And, and I think if we're willing to say that out loud, we can start to unpack how the research trickles down and informs policy and practice. I think that's brilliant because as you said about looking at absence versus presence, if we just said, okay, we're looking at whether or not people are married, 
No judgment, no nothing, just whether or not they're married. That's it. We're not looking at whether they're happily married. We're not looking <laughs> at whether they're unhappily married. This is all we can assess from this is that they're married is as it goes. I, I think you're actually right. It isn't sexy, but it's probably one of the most fundamental changes that need to happen. So I hope that happens. Um, I have to thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. This has been so eye-opening. And I think it's so crucial to think about how we talk about fathering, how we talk about it in um, communities of color, and how we look at the research process surrounding it and the immense flaws that exist. So I hope this has changed, you know, some minds, anyone doing research, think about what you're writing up. What have you looked at exactly? And how can we take away you know, I think it also takes away the bias. If you have a label of it is what it is, and I'm not assigning my value judgment to it, then we suddenly get to look at the research in a slightly different way, as it may be. So do you have any final thoughts or anything to share with everyone? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think the last thing I'll say is explore joy in your lives. Think about the joy in your relationships. I hope, I know there may be parents listening to this podcast who are not researchers, and and I hope if there are any takeaways, it's that the moments you're stressed, the moments you're not at your best are not more impactful than the moments that you are silly and fun and loving with your children. Those are the memories they'll remember and those equally shape who they're going to be. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'll be taking a week off before we return with a fascinating look at fatherhood in mountain gorillas with Dr. Stacy Rosenbaum a name you should recognize if you listen to my interview with Dr. Lee Gettler. And don't worry, if you didn't listen, you've got an extra week to go back and catch up. In the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.